If you had the chance to choose any single event in the life of Jesus to experience firsthand, what would it be? We might think the crucifixion, of course, or the birth, the resurrection, the transfiguration, maybe something more personal. Jesus healing a blind man, raising a daughter or a son or Lazarus. What comes to mind? I'm guessing it would not be Jesus 40 days old. But Luke thought that part of Jesus' life story was so important that he made sure he included it with great detail about the Jewish practices related to it, even though he was writing with Gentiles in mind. Forty days point to significant acts of God, significant periods of time. For instance, how many days did it rain? Forty days and forty nights. How many days was Moses on Mount Sinai? Forty days, in fact, twice. How many days was Jesus in the wilderness being tempted? How many days was Jesus with the disciples after the resurrection and before the ascension? Forty days. The fact that Luke points to these events that occurred 40 days into the life of Jesus tells us it ought to be something that we pay attention to. So we're going to look at the part of the Christmas story that we don't spend a lot of time on. Luke chapter 2, we are going to pick up right after the shepherds return glorifying and praising God about all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. Many of us might think the Christmas story right there goes, the end, (laughs) but it goes on. Verse 21 of Luke 2, on the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he was conceived. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, quote, a pair of doves or two young pigeons, end quote. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel And the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. And when the parents brought in the child to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel, of the tribe of Asher. 
She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, and then as a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshiped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth, and the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. Now, very often, and appropriately so, the sermons about this chapter focus on the prophetic words of Simeon and the blessing of Anna. But I thought it would be very interesting today to look at the connection between Simeon and Anna and Joseph and Mary. And then after that, we're going to look at four traditional things that Mary and Joseph did in the first 40 days of Jesus' life that God had instituted hundreds and hundreds of years before that revealed to us some very important things about Jesus, but also their significance to Mary and Joseph, and then through them, how we should walk when Jesus shows up in our lives. Let's begin by looking at this encounter with Simeon and Anna. Simeon, by tradition, was 110 to 114 years old. He had lived a very long life, and if we were to summarize this uh, hymn that he sings, one of several songs that Luke uses in the birth narrative of Jesus. Luke's version of the nativity might be called Jesus the Musical. (laughs) There are these joyful songs to God, and Simeon's song is the last in this series, and we could summarize it by this, I can die happy. Lord, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. In a sense, Simeon represents the old covenant, longing, waiting for the salvation of Israel to come. And now the old covenant is passing away and the new age is going to begin. Simeon represents those who by faith looked forward to the coming. He doesn't know how the salvation of the Lord will come, but he does know who it is. When he describes Simeon, he says, Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout, which means in terms of his dealings with men, he was trustworthy and faithful in his pursuit of God. That's a great reputation to have. All of us in our old age should want that. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, which is all related to the coming of Messiah. And then it says this, the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah, and moved by the Spirit, he went to the temple courts. This is an image of somebody who has a life of integrity, of great pursuit of God. When we do that, we are close to God. You want to know how to experience the presence of God in your life. That's it. It's Simeon's life, the pursuit of God wholeheartedly that overflows into a life of integrity. Holy Spirit speaks to him, and somehow, the tradition of bringing the firstborn to the temple, which he had probably witnessed thousands of times in his lifetime, and maybe hundreds of times that year so far, and maybe dozens of times that day. Somehow, this boy, the Holy Spirit says, this is the one, and he blesses them. And then there's Anna. Anna, by Simeon's standards, is still a young woman. 
a mere 84. She'd been married for seven years and then was widowed. We don't know if she had children, but we do know that for the rest of her life, she made God her passion. She worshiped and prayed daily. She also was close to the Holy Spirit. She was known as a prophet. But I think the idea that she is a a widowed woman who devotes herself to God's purposes gives us a key here that I think might be missed. You see, I suspect that Simeon and Anna are not just a vehicle of God to confirm what the prophets said about this Jesus being the hope of Israel, who would be a light to the Gentiles and a blessing to his people Israel. I think Simeon and Anna were two of those people that God put in the life of Joseph and Mary at a critical time in order to inspire them about their future. I mean, think about that. Haven't you had people like that? Someone that you have known at a critical moment in your life that was older, that had been through life, and you looked at them, and you thought, man, when I grow up, I want to be like them. I had someone very much like that. I have often spoke about a mentor named Bob Frederick who meant a great deal to me who was also in his mid-80s, and we would meet once a month. He, he mentored pastors in the New England area, and I was one of what he referred to as his boys. And when I was in a time when I was uncertain about what God was doing, as certainly Mary and Joseph are here, when it talks about them marveling, it's wonder, but it's also this sense of fear. This, this is not how I plan for my life to be. It's, it's amazing but it's really unsettling. And when I was in a season like that, it was Bob who God used to give me a sense that I've got a path forward through this, that God is in control, and uh, if I end up like Bob, I'll be okay. Gave me a marker for my life when I was unsure how God was going to use me or if he would use me ever again as a pastor. I didn't know that, but Bob gave me a marker I think Simeon and Anna are guide marks for Joseph and Mary. I mean, think about it. What does Joseph hear Simeon say? I can die happy I've seen the salvation of Israel. And we know that Joseph dies. We don't know when, but he dies long before Jesus begins his ministry. He was known as a devout man, both great integrity and devout to God. Isn't that exactly what we hear about Joseph? Joseph was a man of great integrity who loved the Lord. So there's a path there, I think, a marker in Simeon for Joseph. And what about Mary? Anna became a widow at a very young age. And then what did she do? She devoted herself completely to God's purposes. And that was a path that Mary needed to walk, especially because Simeon makes it clear to her after his joyful song, he speaks truth and love to her and says, this child of yours is going to be a dividing line. He's going to force people to either love him or hate him. The heart, the intents of people will be forced out by your son, and even your own heart will be pierced. Wouldn't you need an older woman who had experienced that path of loss and spent her life devoted to the purposes of God so you could surrender to that path ahead? I think there's something really powerful there that's worth looking at.
Now, let's back up and look at these four traditions from the law of Moses that Mary and Joseph carry out in the first 40 days that are going to help us understand Jesus and see some important things about Mary and Joseph and present some markers for us. The four things that happen here are the naming of the child, the circumcision of the male child, the presentation of the firstborn at the temple, and the purification of the mother. So let's start by looking at the naming of the Savior. We read again at verse 21, on the eighth day when it was time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given them. They name and then they circumcise, and they're probably carried on in Bethlehem by a local priest, and there is always something significant about the name in the ancient Hebrew culture. And what did they actually name the child? What does Jesus mean? Savior. Jesus is an Aramaic derivative of Joshua. And as you know, Joshua was a very commonly used name, not just because of the ancient hero of Israel, Joshua, but because of this looking for the comfort of Israel that was part of the Jewish culture for centuries now. But this one was the one in honor of whom every other Joshua had ever been named because he really was a savior. He would save his people from their sins. He's the fulfillment of the promise. For Mary and Joseph, what it represents is obedience. They didn't understand, but the angel told them, and they named him Jesus. Obedience is a critical quality in Mary and Joseph and needs to be a critical quality in our lives when Jesus comes into our lives. We surrender to God's priorities. The second thing that happens in that same ceremony is the circumcision. It's an identification marker. It says you're part of the people of God. It's very interesting that Luke is taking time to explain all these traditions to Gentiles because he wants people to understand who Jesus was, the promised Messiah of Israel, so he's explaining these different details. He wants people to understand that Jesus was a Jew. God had promised that he would bless the nations through Abraham, and Jesus was the fulfillment of that. So the circumcision associates Jesus with the people of God. For Mary and Joseph, it represents that same thing, their association with the people of God. And so if we were to stretch that as an idea in terms of our own lives, when Jesus enters our life, it's important that we recognize that we're part of the people of God. For us, baptism is a tradition similar to circumcision in the Old Covenant. Baptism is our way of signifying that we are now associated with the people of God. Now we press forward to the 40-day, the coming to the temple. And we have two things that happen on that day. Traditionally, when there was a firstborn son, when the rite of purification for the mother occurs, that is also the time that the firstborn son is brought and presented to God. And this grows out of the principle of first things in the Mosaic Law. God asked for the first fruits of your crops. He asked for the first of your flocks. 
the first of your giving of your resources, your tithe. It's off the top. And he also asked for every family, their firstborn son. The principle is basically what is first goes to the one who is first. He owns it. What Mary and Joseph are doing is coming to where God lives, his house, and saying, here, it's yours. Now, the law provided an opportunity for that child to be redeemed. In fact, it allowed your work animals, the ones that were unclean in terms of dietary but were useful to you, so your mules, those you could redeem back. Five shekels is what it cost. It's the same price for your donkeys as it was for your firstborn son. And, you know, when they become teenagers, it's hard to tell the difference sometimes. (laughs) Five shekels, which represents somewhere around three weeks of average labor. That's no small amount. There's a principle there in terms of the cost. Redemption has a cost to it, to, to buy back, which is exactly the language that is used related to Jesus' act of sacrifice in buying us back from sin, which had ownership of us. But the clean animals and the first fruits of the crops stayed in the temple. A cow, lamb, goats were all sacrificed. And then the meat was given to the priests and their families. That's how they ate, from the first grains and from the, the first of the clean flocks. They were sacrificed and given to the Lord. So there's so much imagery in all of that that we really can't get into today. But I I think it's important that we recognize that God lays claim on everything that's first. God doesn't want our leftovers. God wants our very best. He wants it off the top. He wants everything that comes to you first because he ultimately needs to be first above all of those things. And if you don't see God as first, you'll never be able to give them up to him. What Mary and Joseph are doing in presenting Jesus is giving him up to God's purposes. And of course, Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of the first son because he is God's only begotten son. He's the firstborn of creation, Scripture says. Not the first to be born, but positionally. He is God's son And his father has a very important purpose for him. Simeon reminds them at this moment of giving their son back to God that this is going to be costly. That yes, your son, who is named Savior, really does belong to his heavenly father. He is the salvation not only of the Jews, but a light to the Gentiles. And because of that, in giving him over to God's purposes, Mary, this is going to wound your heart. When you give things over to God, it requires a relinquishing of what you would want. Think about it. Mary is the only human being that witnessed the birth, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. So she comes from joy to an experience of absolute anguish and then to becoming no longer really the mother of the man Jesus, but a worshiper of the Christ Jesus. 
has all of us become. It's really amazing. Let's move on and, and look at um, the purification of Mary. Now, there are definitely things in the Old Testament law that appear to be pretty unfair to women just because of, for instance, their, their regular cycle. During that period, they are considered unclean and can't approach the temple and really have to be apart from the tribe. Women in the Old Testament carried a burden of being a great symbol for the curse in terms of their reproduction. We see that first in Genesis 3 when God says, even birth will now come out of pain and struggle. God chose to use that to demonstrate the curse. I don't understand it, but I do know it's there. And I do know that what God asks from the children of Israel is often hyperbolic. It's more than about justice and fairness because he's trying to draw very clear lines that point to an absolute and utter need for a Savior because no practice of the law, no matter how extreme it is, is going to make any of us righteous. A woman who had given birth could not come to the temple for 40 days. And again, it was because of the issuing of blood. In order to contrast with the righteous blood of Jesus, which is going to be shed for all of us, which would make it possible for male and female, Jew and Gentile, to enter into the family of God. So I, I think that's really what's in mind there. And what it led to in this moment is this powerful thing where Mary and Joseph come and they offer sacrifice. Now this is, this is important. A rite of purification, coming back and being made again acceptable to God, always required sacrifice. And in this case, it should have been a two-year-old lamb, but the law allowed for those who were desperately poor to instead use either a pair of doves or two pigeons. And that's what Mary and Joseph used. So it reminds us again that Jesus was born into desperate poverty. When Jesus became incarnated, he came to the most desperate part of our human experience. As we talked about on Christmas Eve, he was homeless the day he was born. And within two years, he would become a refugee fleeing into Egypt to escape the ferocity and the sword of King Herod. Even in this rite of purification, we understand who Jesus is a little more. But we learn something about Joseph and Mary as well. They're following after holiness. They know that the law requires certain things in order for Mary to be able to once again approach and, and take part in the activities around the temple, which, remember, for them is where God was. So for them, this is about doing what they must in order to be holy before God. So if, if you look at all of these four things through the lens of Mary and Joseph, the naming of the child speaks about their willingness to obey. It's about obedience. The circumcision is about association with the people of God. The presentation of the firstborn is about ownership. This child belongs to God, and in fact, all that I have belongs to God. And the rite of purification is about holiness. They want access to God's presence. They are pursuing a holy life. So we learn some very important things about Jesus and about the Holy Family. If we step back, we also see some really important things 
for us. I mean, think about it. When Jesus comes into our life, our personal advent, Jesus coming, and our life being changed forever, and there might be both joy and a little unsettledness, just like Mary and Joseph experienced when Christ was born into their lives. But what's one of the first things that happens to us when Christ comes into our life, when we are the ones who are born new? Well, don't we get a new name, don't we? Don't we move from being called sinner to saint? From being foreigner to son and daughter? Even the name Christian that we bear today, which was originally meant as a derogatory term, we know and have owned as a badge of honor. No matter where your past is, no matter who named you words that speak about inadequacy and failure, God calls you his child. What happens when we're born into Christ? We become part of a new society. Our baptism identifies us as part of God's people. No matter what people have left you out of their lives so that you have experienced distance and separation and loneliness, God calls you his child. He brings you into his nation, his people. And then in the presentation of the firstborn, what is really at play there is this idea of the primogenitor of the Old Testament, that the firstborn son is the heir to everything. And man, if there was anything in the Old Testament that seemed unfair, it was that. But why is it there? So that when Christ comes and gives all of us access to God, Paul could use that very same term almost sarcastically in saying that all of us, male and female, are now the firstborn sons. We are all heirs to the promise. He is the firstborn of the new creation, Colossians 1 says. He's not just the firstborn of creation. He's the firstborn of the new creation, and in following him, we become heirs. We become the firstborn with him. And then what ultimately happens? A sacrifice, the ultimate rite of purification. That very Savior ultimately becomes not a pauper's sacrifice, and not just any two-year-old lamb, but the very Lamb of God. God sacrificing His first for us so that we could experience purification and then pursue holiness. See, it's all wrapped up in this beautiful little moment. And while even at the end of preaching it, I would say I would probably choose a different event if I just had one to choose from to witness. This one isn't small stuff. And it's worth our spending time in remembering that God calls us to own that name. He calls us to associate and be proud of our identity with his people. He calls us to present ourselves and offer ourselves to him. And he calls us to lives of holiness. This verse would be perfect for us to end with. Let's say this together. I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer yourselves as a living sacrifice, 
holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Could it be that Paul, a converted Pharisee, a Hebrew of Hebrews, is alluding back to ancient Hebrew traditions and saying to us in the same way the firstborn was offered to God and then redeemed as a living sacrifice? Is it possible that Paul's saying that's who we are? We are to offer ourselves as living sacrifices. God owns us. We're going to live for His purposes. And in the same way Mary and Joseph offered themselves in purification, are we to offer ourselves as holy and pleasing to God? This really is what worship is about, always was about. It's not about the law and the tradition. It's ultimately about you and me living for God's glory because we were bought with a price. Amen? Amen. Father, thank you for the truth in this passage that we often overlook. Thank you for who Jesus was as Luke makes a point to underscore, but thank you for how we've seen who we are in him in a fresh way today. And Father, I pray that we would embrace that with hope as we look to a new year. May we truly live out our calling as a new people, offering ourselves completely and fully to you as living sacrifices and that you would find our lives holy and pleasing. In Jesus' name, amen.